All right, welcome back to Firewall. My guest today is Adam Seif. Um, Adam is a media and constitutional litigator, um, but for purpose of this podcast, he is the general counsel at Mayday, and Mayday, as a lot of our listeners probably already know, is an education nonprofit that helps women in red states uh, figure out how to get access to abortion medication via telemedicine. And wanted Adam to come on because the Supreme Court is taking up a case about the FDA's authority to make mifepristone, which is one of the two abortion medications, um, legal. And Adam is the perfect person to help us think through what's going to happen there. So, Adam, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So, so let's start with just just you a little bit. So, like. How does someone, like, like, when everyone goes to law school, I remember when I went to law school, everyone was going to be, you know, uh, some something really noble like the general counsel at Mayday, right? And then everyone ends up just sort of working at like Wilkie doing corporate law or whatever it is. So you actually did this. How does this happen? Well, I, I, I am the outside general counsel at Mayday um, and I do work at a law firm, but I ended up uh, at a law firm called Davis Wright Tremaine, which specializes in media First Amendment issues. Mm-hmm. And um, I knew that I was interested in constitutional law and trying to do well by doing good. And, you know, if you look hard enough, you can find a place like this. And I'm blessed to have wonderful colleagues um, who spend all of their time defending free speech and defending uh, organizations like Mayday who are trying to share public, truthful uh, information with populations that may not have access to them. And, you know, what Mayday is doing right now across the country is really raising awareness about the availability of drugs like Prestone um, and also uh, putting pressure on governments to uh, stand back and uh, really allow folks to um, access those drugs without uh, any sort of impediment. So they're a wonderful client, and it's a privilege to represent them. So obviously, Mayday for it to work relies on the, the availability of mifepristone and misoprostol to be able to send to women in red states who can then use that to, to still get access to an abortion. Um, can you give the history a little bit around the the questions around the legality of mifepristone and how it ended up at the Supreme Court? Yeah, so it kind of goes back to the year 2000, um, which is when the Food and Drug Administration granted the original approval of mifepristone. And um, at that time, it imposed certain conditions uh, on its uh, prescription to prevent certain types of side effects. So, for example, um, it couldn't be prescribed remotely. You had to go in person to receive a prescription for mifepristone. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were certain gestational age limits that were placed on whether you could receive the drug. And the uh, the drug makers were required to issue certain types of mandatory warnings about the side effects of the drug. Um, flash forward about 15 years to 2015, 2016, the FDA enacted a few amendments to relax those conditions, to make it easier in some ways to get access to mifepristone. So they uh, increased the maximum gestational age limit so you could be further into your pregnancy and obtain this drug. It um, went from what to what? Um, I, I, have, I don't remember the exact... I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Okay. They increased the, the maximum gestational age limit further into your pregnancy and access to these drugs. Right. Um, 
you were allowed to get uh, prescriptions from non-physicians. It, it made it easier to obtain a prescription from a, a, a other a medical provider um, other than a, an OB. Um, you didn't have to be in person to administer the drug. Um, there was they eliminated the follow-up appointment requirement. Um, they uh, eliminated eliminated the prescriber's obligation to report adverse events. So basically, they took all these hurdles, which might have deterred folks from um, pursuing this perfectly safe um, medical option, and and people began using uh, this this drug in in greater numbers. And the hurdles were just from a pure health standpoint unnecessary, right? I mean, obviously they would have kept them if they felt like in order for women to take this medication safely, they would have to. But what we have seen in the years is, you know, hundreds of thousands of women have safely taken this medication without any of these hurdles being necessary, right? That, that's exactly right. And that's sort of how the, the FDA works. So, you know, I'm going to try and spare you the administrative law lecture, but the way that like a federal agency like the FDA works is that they they do research and they determine how drugs uh, factually and they gather the evidence how they affect people when they're when they're taken and they create policies that reflect those investigations and they set rules which have to be approved and people can comment on them and then they enact the rules and then those become the law. Um, the FDA in this case, after 15 years of evidence, just determined that it was safe to remove these barriers and that those barriers were no longer um, necessary to protect uh, pregnant folks who were taking these drugs. And they only served as obstacles for the purposes that these drugs served mm -hmm. in, the, in the communities where they were being prescribed. So in 2016, the FDA amends uh, its rule with respect to Mifepristone. The next thing that happens in the story is in 2019, the FDA approves a generic version of Mifepristone. So you no longer had to go and get the original manufacturer's drug. Um, competing drug makers could make generic versions of the drug, which reduce the cost and much easier to get access on a cost basis to this drug. And then finally, um, in 2021, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, the Biden administration's FDA announces that it would not enforce the in-person prescription and dispensation requirement. So what that meant is that previously, you had to, even though you didn't have to uh, appear in person to have the drug administered, you still had to appear in person to have it prescribed and to receive the drug. But because of COVID, and based on the evidence that the FDA had reviewed over at that point, 21 years of, of seeing this drug circulated, the FDA determined that um, it was not necessary to receive and have this drug prescribed in person. And that's what enabled folks to start getting these pills in the mail. You could go online, get it prescribed, you could have a remote medical appointment, and then you could have the drugs distributed uh, in a, in, through the mails or however else, just not even have to come in to get them in person. And then the anti-abortion factions challenge this in Texas, correct? That's right. And so that brings us to where we are now. The, there was a group of anti-abortion activists in Texas uh, comprised of 
uh, a group of anti-abortion doctors and a, a putative association, a medical association of these doctors. They challenged all four of those actions, the approval, the 2016 amendments that relaxed the approval, the generic approval, and then this uh, non-enforcement decision in 2021 that permitted the drug to be distributed. It's sort of a tricky case because it's not entirely clear at the outset how doctors are harmed by the FDA approving these drugs. And to have a case in court, you need to have what's called standing. You may have heard this talked about in other Supreme Court cases recently. A lot of times when the justices, for political reasons, may not want to take up a case on the merits, they'll say, well, the plaintiffs don't have standing. They don't have an injury that they've suffered that we could redress in court. And so they could kick it out on that basis. And over the years, the conservatives on the Supreme Court have made the standing doctrine, the hoops that you have to jump through to show that you've been injured, rather high to make it more difficult for civil rights plaintiffs, for instance, the voting rights plaintiffs, to get into court to vindicate their rights. But in this case, a federal district court in Texas initially, and then the Fifth Circuit of, uh, of Appeal, which is a conservative appellate court that covers much of the South, including Texas, um, those courts held that these doctors and their medical association, in fact, had standing to bring this lawsuit. And so that allowed them to bring claims against each of those four approvals. Um, so what did the court say? Well, the bottom line is that um, the, <clears throat> the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal, when it got up there, it said that um, the district court's previous decision, so the district court had first heard the case, it actually blocked all of four of those approvals, all four of those FDA actions. The district court said, yep, these doctors have injuries because they have to, you know, treat women who, uh, or pregnant folks who are uh, seeking abortions and it's against their conscience or it's against their uh, judgment as medical practitioners to provide these services. So they're injured by having to provide these drugs, which is a very novel theory of injury. And it said that all of those four requirements uh, were either uh, unconstitutionally uh, adopted because they didn't um, it exceeded sort of the agency's uh, statutory delegation of power, or else they didn't have the sufficient evidentiary support to reach each of the decisions that they made. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal narrows that ruling a little bit, says that the doctors had standing for some claims but not others. Um, they the Fifth Circuit rejects the challenge to the initial 2000 approval of the drug, but says that they're likely to succeed challenging the 2016 amendments in the 2021 non-enforcement uh, action. They, they permitted the general approval. So the case has now been appealed and the Supreme Court has taken it. And the Supreme Court's gonna answer uh, basically three questions. The first question is, do these doctors in this medical association, do they have standing? Is this a case that is really properly in the courts at all? You know, what injury do doctors suffer by doing their jobs? That's sort of the threshold question. Okay. Um, and, and then they're gonna ask whether the, there was uh, evidence to support the 2016 amendments 
and the uh, 2021 non-enforcement decision. And when, when, when you say evidence, I mean, doesn't that get to the question of the underlying authority of the FDA in the first place? Um, and and it, it, how much of that is a question here? I mean, obviously, there's the abortion issue itself, which is incredibly controversial and hot button. Yeah. But it seems like there's even a deeper or, you know, question here, which is the ability of the FDA to effectively decide what, what drugs should and should not be legal and how they should and should not be legal. Yes, exactly. And that's sort of the, the administrative law lecture, an abbreviated version of which is that, you know, these folks are really challenging the idea of government as we know it. Yeah. You know, we, we've got so many things that governments do to keep us safe, to keep, you know, food and drugs safe, to approve the seatbelts on airplanes, right, to set the standards for highways. Um, Congress can't do this all itself, right? And for the last 100 years, we've had an administrative state to whom authority is delegated by Congress with instruction to devise solutions to public problems and to use evidence to create rules that best suit public safety and uh, public health and opportunity, provide opportunities for flourishing. And this case is really challenging the idea that uh, an agency like the Food and Drug Administration can ever do something like that because the evidence in this case, frankly, is, is somewhat overwhelming. And um, it's clear that the agency did its homework on this and didn't act capriciously or without any forethought. And so if an agency can't take these kinds of actions, it's not clear what types of actions they could take. Right. So, so in, in theory, if the court were to rule you know, in, in favor of the, the plaintiffs, um, wouldn't that question the FDA's ability to ultimately approve or review, prescribe any drug? Yeah, it could affect your ability to, to obtain Viagra. It could obtain, affect your ability to obtain, you know, a, a blood pressure pill. I mean, these are, it, it goes to the basic functions of what the FDA does, but it also goes to the basic function of what the National Highway Transportation Administration does, what other agencies do in approving all kinds of ordinary products that you don't even think about when you're using them in your everyday life. Right. By the way, products that you are relying upon, these agencies, whether it's NHTSA or the FDA or whatever it is, or OSHA, to make sure that you're safe to use them without having to test them yourselves and think about it yourself. I mean, that's sort of the whole point. That's um, right. So that's so right. we get to the Supreme Court, and because of the underlying issues you just laid out, it's sort of at least not clear that this case will just follow the the breakdown in, in Dobbs, right? Um, because while there may be justices who were happy to overturn Roe, um, it doesn't mean that they want to put the entire administrative state in, in jeopardy or question. So is it ultimately the same 6-3 breakdown here? Or does Roberts, for example, who seems much more of a system guy, really side with you know the FDA on this? And if so, you know, of the other of the other five, who could he bring over? Yeah, I would look at Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, and I'd look at Justice Kavanaugh, um, particularly on the standing question, sort of this threshold question, like whether these whether these plaintiffs have a legal case as opposed to like a political right. And um, if if I were 
to prognosticate, I would suspect that uh, there would be an attempt to, at, at that threshold question, try to narrow what the court is able to consider on the merits, perhaps determining that, well, they don't really have standing to challenge this non-enforcement provision, or they don't have, they don't have standing to challenge um, the amendments, but they could challenge the non-enforcement provision, one or the other, something like that. And I think that that's a, a basis that you might see procedurally to try and um, maintain a more measured ultimate disposition in this case. I'd look especially to, to Justice Roberts for that, um, but there is an appetite among many justices on the court to restrict access to safe and what used to be legal abortion. Right, I mean, it's, it's interesting in that you've got at least five justices who clearly feel that way. Although there was a piece in the Times, I think over the weekend, about kind of the behind the scenes on Dobbs. And it sounds like Roberts actually was trying to reach a, a different outcome and mm -hmm. was lobbying different colleagues. And at one point, even even uh, Barrett on some, some ways seemed like maybe, even despite being fiercely pro-life, that she was amenable. So it, seem, it would seem to me in my sort of totally inexpert court analysis that Alito and Thomas are, you know, clearly lost causes on this thing. And then Roberts, you would imagine, would have real concerns about undermining the system. And then between Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, it's sort of past the standing question when you get to the underlying authority of the FDA question. Do you think any of them say, as much as I believe in, uh, you know, that abortion is murder or whatever else, I'm not going to dismantle the entire administrative state over it? Or do you think that their personal view on abortion just governs everything? Well, you know, in fact, for for Justice Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, dismantling the administrative state is a project of theirs. They, right. They've given lectures about this. Uh, Federal society has promoted this as part of their agenda, is to really narrow what federal agencies can do and to make it much more difficult for Congress to delegate them authority to do even basic things like approving drugs. So I... I worry there could be a confluence of yeah. interests on the agenda that could create a majority. Whether or not uh, the uh, six justices would wish to act in a way to advance their abortion agenda, enough of them may see this as an opportunity to rein in what, in their view, is a, uh, a an administrative state run amok and take this opportunity for example, as they did in the EPA case last year, where they announced this major questions doctrine, which is a doctrine that no one had ever heard of before they announced it, to limit what uh, agencies can do. And so I think that between those two factors, there are probably votes to restrict this in some way. And I think that the, the strongest arguments are to try to avoid the merits altogether by indicating that these plaintiffs don't really have claims. This is, these are doctors. Their, their job is provide medical services, and uh, if if they don't want to provide medical services to these people, they should get out of the business of being a doctor and provide the services that they're being asked to provide. If you're Trump, I mean, clearly, I forget about it, he has no beliefs one way or the other, but the, the professes to be pro-life, so and he's certainly appointed a lot of pro-life judges, and yeah. certainly the people around him are very aggressive in wanting to dismantle the administrative state, and yet at the same time, given that sending anything to Congress is basically a death sentence because nothing has any chance of passing 
no matter what. Mm-hmm. Let's say he thinks he's going to be the president again. Do you want this, you know, suit to succeed because it helps you dismantle the administrative state, or do you not want anything that could infringe on your own authority and power to act as an executive, either? You know, I, I think that the trick though is that by eliminating these sort of formal agency um, expert decision making, you empower the sort of arbitrary political decision making that Trump wants to pursue fashion. So a case like this, what what the FDA does, it's sort of a a paradigmatic case of government expertise using science, the use of science to create reasonable rules, create conditions that allow people to be safe, and, and obtain public goods. Um, you could dismantle all that, and what you're left with is this raw executive power for the president to issue an executive order um, to direct an agency to take a certain type of action, or relying on his Article II powers in the Constitution to claim that, well, you know, it's not about, it. we're not even going to delegate it to an agency. We're just going to exercise this directly through the, the powers that I have as president. So. I'm not sure that the folks that are supporting uh, former President Trump really care uh, about what the courts say about administrative law. They're going to do what they damn well please, and they've told us as much. Yeah, going to be a dictator on day one, right? That's what he said. Yep, he certainly did. So, um, Adam, when will the court hear this, and when should we expect a decision? Um, I think that the he will hear the case at some point. I believe in the spring, and I think we could expect a ruling at some point in the mid to late summer, but it's always hard to predict with the court these days. But that's generally how this would line so, up. You know, you nothing else. Happen. No, no, like massive election happening <laughs> at that time or, or any, anything else to impact. So, um, yeah, well, it will certainly not be boring at whatever else it is. So, Adam, uh, thanks for coming on and uh, look forward to working with you on, on some A Day stuff next year. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for all you do. Okay, as Hugo calls it, we're going to do one of our famous hard pivots and go from teleabortion to the year in books. Um, so it couldn't really be two much more different topics. Uh, but every year I make a list of my favorite books of the year. I put it out publicly. Um, actually, now at the bookstore, there's a section of my 10 favorite books, and they're out there. So if you're interested in any of these, you can come by and grab a copy of it. Um, and thought I'd walk through them with you guys just to tell you what I what I enjoyed and see if there's anything you might want to read. Um, and so there's there's a top 10 um, on my sub stack. Is I think a list of all the books that I read from January through November. So it's around 60 books or so. Um, and, and by definition, I don't finish books I don't like. Once I'm 40 or 50 pages in, usually, if I don't like it, I stop reading. And actually, even recently, I had a book where I was about 250 pages in and another one about 150 pages in, and then realized I didn't feel like I kept reading it, and I just stopped. So if I finished a book, it means it's pretty good, because otherwise it wouldn't have happened in the first place. Um, as a reminder, I mainly read fiction. I mainly read contemporary fiction. Um, and so the vast majority of this list reflects that. So these are the the 10 books that I enjoyed the most, and this is not an order of top 10. It's an order of when I read them over the course of the year, which I know is a bit of a cop-out, but that's what I did. So the the first one, which I read in January, is called Stories from the Tenants Downstairs. It's by a guy named Sadiq Fofana. If you are an avid Firewall listener, you might recognize his name. He's been on the podcast. 
Uh, he was one of the winners of the Gotham Book Prize last year. And it, it's a story, it's a novel, but it's interconnected stories all about people who live or work um, in, a, in a housing, in a building, basically, a, a subsidized building in Harlem. And what I loved about the book so much is he captures the voices of so many different types of people, old people, young people, men, women, gay, straight, people who are unemployed, people who are professionals, you know, really across the board, and they all feel compelling, and they all feel real, and they all feel vital, and that is so hard to do. You know, with my writing, one of the fears that I always have is that my characters all sound the same. Like, I think my dialogue's pretty good because I write like I talk, um, but I think everyone sounds like me. Uh, in all of my in all of my writing, and what Sadiq did to me that was so profound and so impressive was that he really was able to put himself in the perspective and voice of all of these different characters who yet did have a shared history and a shared experience, and they come together at various points throughout the book. So I, I thought it was really wonderful. So that's the first one. Second one is a novel called Age of Vice by Deepti Kapoor. Um, takes place in India, modern day India, I think. Uh, I read it like a year ago now, so I'm trying to remember. Um, it's a coming of age, of age story. Um, it is a really winding book. Sometimes there are these great Indian novels that, you know, because it's a country that is evolving so much, you know, you can have so much of the old world and the new world at the same time and, and the clash of the two. Um, it takes place in many parts of India, and it's just really vivid and really colorful, and it's a great story. Um, I will say that it's probably about 100 at least pages too long. Um, could have benefited from some more editing, but overall, a, a really fun book, and if you find contemporary India interesting at all, um, this is a good one to read. Um, third is is Every Man a King by Walter Mosley. You may know him. He's a pretty famous writer. He's been around for a long time. He's a great crime writer, and I would say that the average Mosley book is really good. So if you like him, you know this is a really good Mosley book. Um, it's about a detective in Brooklyn who uh, you know ends up in a, in a personal situation where he is being uh, framed for something, and he has to sort of solve his way through it and fight his way through it. Um, and it's just an exciting book. It's a fun book. It's a fast and easy book. Um, it stays with you. You care about the characters. You know, in a way, it's a New York City book, and, and we're looking for sort of good options for the Gotham Book Prize for next year, although it's maybe a little less about the city um, than, than some of the other books that have, have won in the past. But um, as we're, as I'm talking out loud here, it might not be a bad, uh, a bad idea. Um, fourth book is Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. Um, she's a really great writer who writes sort of fun, romantic comedy-type novels that happen to have a lot to say. Um, what was cool about this one, it was a play on the usual boy meets girl who out of, who's out of his league story. So typically it's, you know, boy meets girl, she's out of his league, uh, but he's so charming, he's so weird, he's so wonderful, he's so smart that he gets her anyway, right? Um, the real-life version, this of course, is he's usually so rich that he gets her anyway, in novels, that doesn't really work, so he has to be some other quality that she spots in him, and despite the way he looks or whatever else, she overlooks that and, and decides that she loves him anyway. 
What's cool about it is she flips it in this case. So it's it's really the the girl who is the one that kind of has to be seen for who she truly is, and the, and the boy is the one who's the real catch and who's out of her league. Um, and the whole story takes place during COVID, so it's the evolution of a love story during isolation, during quarantine, then coming together. Um, and it does a good job of, of the book is about the two characters, but it uses COVID in a way that, that coheres the story together. So I really liked it. Um, the fourth is called Small Mercies by Dennis Lehane. Uh, a lot of you probably have read Lehane's books, writes a lot of great crime novels. Um, they often take place in, in Boston. A lot of them have become movies. Um, Small Mercies is a novel about busing in the Boston schools in the early 1970s. And I'm just going to read what I wrote here in the Substack because I think it's better than I could say it, which is it's all at once about violence, family, identity, tribe, and right and wrong. It was beautifully written and exciting at the same time, which is a rare combination. Uh, everyone I know who read this book just absolutely loved it. it it's a hard book emotionally. I mean, the characters are, you know, really suffer and, and, and they're really full and, and meaningful. And so you really come to care about them. Um, and their lives are not easy at all. And, and everyone bears a lot of culpability. Um, but it is a just terrific book that captures the gray uh, in life and in difficult situations. Um, the next book I fucking loved. Some people didn't like it. Um, Bob Greenlee, whose books, usually I, he and I have somewhat similar taste in books. He, he hated it. Um, it's called The Chain Gang All-Stars by Nana Kwame Ajay Brenna, if I'm saying that correctly. And it's a fantasy book. And I don't read fantasy. Um, you know, I remember, like, my kids love The Hunger Games and all of that. And it, typically, to me, like, the whole dystopian thing is, I, I get the, the appeal, but Usually, I don't want to read three, four hundred pages of it. But this is a dystopian end of the world. Everyone for themselves. Everyone must survive. Everything is fuck type novel, and it was awesome. Um, it was about uh, this band of of prisoners who could actually fight their way out of uh, prison by sort of doing these big gladiator public spectacles. And if you keep winning, eventually you become free. And they are so complex because on one hand. They're the characters of the book. You come to really care about them. You come to identify with them. And yet they did do things that put them in jail, like murder. Um, so it's it's not like these are, you know, innocent, heroic people who have been framed and, and this is sort of the fight for justice. These are very flawed people, like all of us are. Um, obviously, it's in an extreme situation, um, but it, it captures the way they relate to each other um, and the way they relate back to broader society, what they did, how they feel about it, how they'll be coming out of it. Um, and yet it's also just so much action and it's so exciting and it's so well written. Um, this was probably one of my favorite two books of the year, I would say. Um, the other one, which probably was my favorite book of the year, is Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. Um, not exactly a great find by me. I think this won every award you could possibly imagine. But it's, it's David Copperfield set in Appalachia. Um, Demon Copperhead, who's the, the main character of the book, is this kid kind of all the way through his sort of young adulthood, um, growing up with every disadvantage you can imagine, familial, drugs, violence, you know, you name it, he suffered it. And yet instead of it being this novel that's just like, here's how terrible the world is and here's why we should all sort of feel horrible, it, it's also triumphant in many ways too because, again, He's so nuanced and so complex that he's not just a tragic figure. He's not just a victim. He's in many ways a hero. 
Um, and he's a real person, and you kind of live with that and the good and the bad of what he does and what the people around him do. And, you know, this is what really good writing is. is like It's not that everyone's all good or all bad. It's that people are fundamentally flawed, but at the same time also are good in many ways. And the best writing captures that. And I think this did that more than any other book that I read this year. Um, and so I think it's really great. I also think that if you want to have any sense of how Appalachia works and how there's just a part of the country that is so different from sitting here on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, um, it, it is a book that I think does tell the story. And you haven't heard lots of people say, oh, she didn't get it right or that was a false portrayal of it. I think people feel like it was both very accurate and very good. Um, Crook Manifesto, Colson Whitehead. So he's an incredible writer. Um, I actually like the Intuitionist and some of his other books like Sag Harbor and his poker book more than Underground Railroad and Nickel Boys. Um, but those two last books were major successes. I think Underground Railroad won the National Book Award and all kinds of other stuff like that. Um, what I like about this is it kind of goes back to just being fun. So Whitehead, before he started writing these very depressing, serious books, um, just wrote really fun, interesting, weird books. Um, and this goes back to that. So it, it's about a guy, it takes place in 1976 in Harlem. Um, and it's about a guy who owns a furniture store, but he's got some side hustles around sort of stolen goods on the side. And it's just about sort of how New York is unfolding and evolving in that moment and sort of the advent of, um, you know, uh, crime in some ways, um, but also sort of changing norms in Harlem and in the city and kind of political corruption and YPD. Um, and it's just a fun book, and yet it also says a lot. It's an easy read. It moves fast. Um, I, I absolutely loved it. Um, number nine is a book called Outlive. This is the one nonfiction book on the list, The Science of Art and Longevity by Dr. Peter Atia. Um, and, and this book is about the first 60%, I would say, is effectively Atia's thesis for Medicine 3.0. Um, you know, Medicine 1.0 was effectively you know, leeches and things like that. Medicine 2.0, which is the modern age, um, is that they can really now diagnose problems and come up with broad-based solutions for them, but you just have to hope that the broad-based solution works for you. And Medicine 3.0, according to Atia, is individualizing all of it. And the technology we have today, the kind of tests that we can do today, where artificial intelligence is going, will allow us to really understand each individual's, you know, genetic makeup, molecular makeup, you know, biological risks, biological needs, everything else at so much more of a granular level of detail that we can come up with really personalized healthcare plans for, for each of us that can spot problems long before, you know, modern medicine would uh, and help us develop habits that would allow us to not just live for a lot longer, but to be strong and healthier and, and those lives to be um, much better. The second half of the book, or maybe the second 40% of the book, are his specific views on exercise, sleep, nutrition, and mental health. Um, I don't know that I agree with all of them, or he knows much more than I do. I don't think I'm in a position to disagree. But some of them were, were more overdone than I'm willing to do, right? I'm not willing to devote my entire life solely to longevity at the expense of everything else. Um, but one thing I really liked is he kind of got to that point on the mental health section, which is he talked about his own mental health struggles and issues which have been significant and he was so transparent about them that one you develop a lot of respect for him for doing that but two even his own conclusions like look it's great to live for as long as possible and be as healthy as possible but you also have to be happy during that and if you're not 
it doesn't really matter. And so it, it, it introduces at the end of the book kind of an element of, of reasonableness into it. And so um, I've, I've recommended it to a bunch of people. I've bought it for a bunch of people. Um, they've all read it. They've all loved it. Um, very worthwhile book. And the last one on the list is Wellness by Nathan Hill. Um, you may have read The Knicks by Hill. That was his most his previous novel, which I loved. Um, this is set in Chicago, and part of the reason I liked it is a lot of it takes place in a neighborhood called Wicker Park in the 1990s. I lived in Wicker Park in the 1990s, um, and it was like a really cool neighborhood. It was just at the turn of gentrifying, so you felt like you were at the edge of something. Of course, all of that's a ridiculous concept in some ways, but, you know, speaks to specific clubs and buildings and things that are really new. But it's uh, it's about these two people, and, and they meet when they're really young, and they fall in love, and it's their, how their lives unfold over a period of decades. And they have a kid and um, about their careers and their successes and their failures. And there's a subplot specifically around kind of wellness and placebo effects. It's, it's an interesting concept, and I liked it. But the reality is, it's not that the book didn't need it, but, but the strength of the characters were enough with or without that particular, you know, concept within it. And, you know, the characters, they were just so flawed and yet so impressive, so conflicted, so real that I just loved every minute of it. So those are my top 10. Um, I'm just going to read out the next 10 uh, without describing them, but um, The Shards by Brett Easton Ellis, The Mostly True Story of Tanner and Louise by Colleen Oakley, American Mermaid by Julia Langbin, Confidence by Raphael Frumkin, Big Swiss by Jen Bagan, The One by Julia Argy, All Night Pharmacy by Ruth Minigeski, Quitting Weed, The Complete Guide by Matthew Clark, The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store by James McBride, and How Not to Be a Politician by Rory Stewart. So if you're looking for something to read, you know, hopefully some of these are, are good suggestions and uh, let us know what you think of them. Thanks. Firewalls recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Network, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.